Amen. You have your Bibles. I want to invite you to open to Colossians chapter 2. <clears throat> While you're turning there, let me give you just a quick update on our trip to Nepal. Three weeks ago this morning, a team of seven men stood here and you prayed over us and sent us out. And let me just give you a report, a quick report of what God did. Five years ago, as I told you a few weeks ago, there were no believers in the village of Redok, Nepal, which is about a mile from the Tibet-China border. And we began to send teams there and share the gospel there and God began to work and a church was started there. And so on this particular trip that we took just a couple of weeks ago, we had the opportunity to dedicate the first ever Bible-believing, gospel-centered church in the village of Redoc. And I want to tell you, it was a celebration unlike anything that I've ever been a part of. The, literally, the entire village came out to celebrate. And uh, what we decided to do, this was not something that was planned in advance, but we decided that <clears throat> we wanted to feed the village. And so we had a yak slaughtered, and we fed the entire village of Redoc yak meat. Now, if you want to know what yak meat tastes like, just think of shoe leather, and I think you've got it down, okay? But I'm telling you, the people of Redoc loved this yak meat. But it was just awesome to see them come together. We worshiped together. We prayed together. We dedicated the, the church together. We shared the gospel together. And, and then something happened that really I was not expecting. After all of those events the night before in the morning, we were planning to trek out to begin our journey down the mountain. <clears throat> and they had brought out benches in the village and they asked our team if we would sit on these benches. And then they proceeded to pour Mountain Dew in glasses uh, that were rimmed with butter. And then they began to dance for us. Like the women of the village began to dance for us and they put flowers on our neck. And it was just such a beautiful picture of what happens when the gospel comes to a person's life, but even what happens when the gospel comes to a community. It, it made me think of uh, the book of Acts. In Acts 8, verses 1 through 8, uh, the disciples are advancing the gospel and they're displaying, declaring the gospel as it moves outside of Jerusalem. And then Acts 8, 8 says something really powerful. It says, and then there was much joy in that city. And all I could think about was there's much joy in the village of Redoc now because you prayed because we got, went and God has been at work. And now the gospel has come to that village where previously there were no believers. There are now well over 20 believers and a church that is established in that village. Amen. God is good. Praise God. So I wanted to give you a brief update. And again, thank you for your prayers. So this morning, we are going to be in Colossians chapter 2. Pastor Josh is out a little under the weather this morning. Pray for him. He'll be back in the pulpit next week. But as I considered what I wanted to preach today, I wanted to preach something that has been um, a truth that has changed my life. And I'll explain more about that in just a moment. That truth is how the gospel reforms and reshapes our identity, how the gospel reforms and reshapes our identity. I read something uh, that 
kind of took me by surprise. It said that in 2023, there have been 5.7 million cases of fraud and identity theft. And those losses have totaled to over $10 billion. And get this, Georgia is actually the leading state in America when it comes to identity theft. And there may be some of you in the room this morning that have experienced that and know this, how difficult it can be. In fact, it's estimated that at some point in our lives that one third of Americans will experience identity theft. Now, as bad as that is, there's something actually far, far more dangerous and more costly. And that is this, that as a believer, you have a person, you have an enemy who is seeking to rob you of believing and living in the identity that you were given when you first believed the gospel. What I mean by that, that is this, is that when you trusted and followed Jesus, something fundamental happened inside of you. You became a new person. Paul describes it in Ephesians this way, that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation Old things have passed away, and behold, all things are become new. Now, Paul in that scripture in Ephesians 5, 17, is not simply talking about behavior. He's talking about identity, that you fundamentally, upon accepting Christ, became a brand new person. And every day as a believer, listen, every day as a believer, you have an enemy that is seeking to lie to you, and to rob you of understanding and walking in and living out that identity. And that is a far, far greater consequence than having your financial identity stolen. He wants you to believe this. He wants you to believe that the gospel is not enough. That what Jesus has done for you by dying for you on the cross and placing his spirit in you is not sufficient for life and joy and meaning and purpose. He wants us to believe that, yes, although all of that is good and fine and right and that it's going to be our ticket to heaven one day, that when it comes to living out this life, there's something else that you need. You need more validation. You need more approval from others. You need more stuff in order to live a life that's full and meaningful and purposeful. And we're all tempted every single day to believe that lie. Well, I've got good news for you. The beauty of the gospel is this. Because of Jesus' sinless life, because of his sacrificial death, because of his victorious resurrection, you are now more loved and accepted and provided for, listen, on the basis of what God has done for you than, what on you than what you do for him. In other words, your acceptance before God is on the basis of his love and acceptance and approval of you. And so that produces freedom. That produces joy. In other words, because of what Christ has done for us, we have everything that we need. But here's the question. Let's be honest for a moment. Do you really believe it? Do you really believe that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you have everything that you need? You don't. And I don't either. 
Because I see patterns in my heart. I see patterns in your lives too, where you're always, we're looking for things to, to bring meaning and value and validation and purpose in our lives. We always feel like there's something missing, something that if we just had a little bit more of, more stuff, more approval, more recognition. In fact, every day, advertisers are trying to sell us meaning, purpose, and satisfaction. Did you know that every year Americans spend over $10 billion on cosmetic surgery? Why? Because there's something else. We're something we're longing for. Our hearts are needing. Advertisers want us to believe that for us to be more successful, acceptable, and beautiful, that there's something uh, lacking and something more that we need. One of my favorite bands from the 80s is U2. Um, I'm sure there's some U2 fans in the room. Certainly there will be in the next service. Uh, But in 1987, Bono wrote a song entitled, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. And, and, And Bono confesses to be a Christian. But notice, notice the lyrics in this particular song. And I think the lyrics that Bono is sharing here really reflect, honestly, some of the attitudes that are in our hearts at times. Listen to what he says. I believe in the kingdom come. Then all the colors will bleed into one, bleed into one. Yes, but I'm still running. He says, you broke the bonds, you loosed the chains, you carried the cross of my shame. Oh, my shame. Oh, my shame. You know, I believe it. But then he says this, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Uh, an interviewer asked Bono about that song and like what, what was the, the meaning behind it. He said, well, it's really not so much a song about faith as it is a song about doubt. He was being honest about the fact that even though he says he believes the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there's something in his heart that still questions it. That there's something in him that still feels like something is missing. How many of us this morning would be honest enough to say, I believe in Jesus, I've trusted in Christ, but I still feel like something is missing. I think if we were gut level honest, a lot of us in this room would say the same thing that Bono has said. And this is exactly what the false teachers in Colossae were saying. In Colossians, in the city of Colossae, in the church in Colossae, there was a heresy going around. There was a lie being propagated among believers that yes, you need to trust in Jesus for your salvation. You need the gospel to be made right with God. But there's more than that. The gospel is not sufficient. You need to move beyond the gospel. You need works, you you need experiences, you need all these other things in order to have a life filled with purpose and meaning and value. And this heresy, this philosophy was creeping into the church and it was beginning to impact the lives of believers. And I believe that that's not a lie that just was, you know, prevalent during the New Testament days in the church in Colossae is something that we deal with as well. Because we all struggle with that. We all struggle with finding, wanting to find meaning, purpose, and acceptance in things other than the gospel. But look at Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. Because I think right off the bat in verse 6, the Apostle Paul gives us the reason that this happens. 
Look what he says. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now, don't miss that. What Paul's saying is this. So, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, question, how did you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? You believed that you were a sinner, incapable of saving yourself, right? And you believed that what God did through sending Jesus to live a sinless life and to die a sacrificial death and to be raised to life again three days later was sufficient to pay for your sin and to give you a new life. You believed that, right? If you're a Christian, that's exactly what you believed. True? So what Paul's saying here, though, is this. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord by believing the gospel, what does he say next? So walk in him. Meaning that the gospel is not just what you needed to be saved. The gospel is also what you desperately need, listen, to be sanctified. The very gospel that you believe to get you into the kingdom is the same gospel that you have to daily believe and daily appropriate in order to grow as a follower of Jesus. And this was a lie that the heretics in Colossae were saying, is that oh, yeah, all you need is the gospel, but now there's other things that you need in your life in order to have value, meaning, and purpose. And Paul's saying, no, the gospel is what is sufficient for you. The great reformer, Martin Luther, has stated that we as sinners are prone to pursue a relationship with God in two ways, one of two ways. One way is by religious activity and spirituality, meaning the more things that we do to try to prove to God that we are serious about following Jesus, like that is, that is one of the primary ways that people try to pursue God. I would say this, listen to me. I would say that's the way most people try to pursue God. All over the world, most people try to pursue God through religious activities. They try to do more, they work harder, good works, church attendance, all kinds of things that, you know, some kind of checklist spirituality that if I can just do enough, God will accept me and be pleased with me. So that's one way that people try to pursue God. The second way Luther said that we pursue God is by believing the gospel. And that's the only way, incidentally, that we can know God, to be right with God, is by approaching God through the gospel, believing that Jesus is sufficient, believing in the finished work of Christ is the only way that we can actually make progress in the Christian life. Nothing will frustrate your Christian progress more than trying to serve God in your own strength, trying to do uh, uh, things to prove to God that you want to follow him. Nothing will bring greater freedom than trying to understand the gospel and live out your faith in following Jesus by appropriating the gospel in your life. And in Colossians 2.8, this is ex exactly what Paul's saying. Look what he says. See to it then that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. See, again, there are these false teachers in Colossae that are trying to get people 
and get their, get their focus off of Christ, off of the gospel and onto themselves and onto other things. Saying to them, it's not enough. Christ is not enough. It's Christ and you need more than just following Jesus. So the church in Colossae was being tempted to seek their meaning, purpose, and identity on something smaller than Christ. Are you guilty of doing the same thing? I am at times. So in Colossians 2, verses 9 through 15, Paul declares to us what is ours through believing and living in the gospel. So these next verses, what I want us to do is I want us to see four different things that God has given to us as Christ, from Christ, okay? Through believing in Christ that reshapes our entire identity. Now, before I read the text, it's interesting to me that there are nine times in this text, I want you to look for it when we read it. There are nine times in this text that Paul uses the phrase either in him or with him. In him or with him. That's really significant, okay? Because the term in him and with him are referring to our new identity in Christ. It's referring to the fact that we have a union with Christ and that when God sees us, he sees his son, Jesus. So fundamentally at the core, when you got saved, you became a brand new person, united with Christ. So when God looks at you, he sees his son, Jesus. So let's look at this. In fact, I'm gonna start back at verse six and I want you to see if you can underline all nine times that either in him or with him are mentioned. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is, in the, who is the head and uh, all rule and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Wow. Do you see all those nine different times? And that the phrase in him, again, refers to this new identity that you've been given. So let's look at the four ways that Paul talks about in here in verses nine through 15, that because we are in him, we have received something new in our identity. The first thing is this, in Christ, in Christ, you are complete. Write that down. In Christ, you are complete. You lack nothing. Verses nine and 10, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and you have been given fullness in Christ. Fullness, that word fullness means the totality of divine powers. It's the same word that's used of Christ in chapter one and verse 19. 
when it talks about all the fullness of God being in the person, the bodily person of Jesus Christ. And so now he's saying of you that you have all the fullness of God in you. Not three quarters of a tank, right? (laughs) Not four fifths of a tank. You have been given fullness. But so often we feel incomplete. We feel, right? And I'm using the word feel strong here. We feel like something is missing. Do you ever find yourself getting caught in the if only syndrome? If only syndrome? You say, what's if only? Well, if only I had a better job, right? If only I had a nicer house. If only I had a, a better car, right? If only I had a relationship, single people. Like, if only, there's, there's this tendency to get caught in the if only syndrome of feeling like, you know, if I could just achieve that thing that feels a little bit elusive, then my life would be filled with meaning and purpose and value and significance. And that's the lie that the enemy wants us to believe. Listen, as believers, we need to understand and believe that in Christ, we have everything that we need. Not just most things, not just the essential things. Literally, he says, you have everything that you need. You lack nothing. In fact, listen to the way the apostle Peter talks about this in 1 Peter, or sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He says, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Peter's saying, you've got it all. It's all right there. When you trusted in Christ and he placed his spirit in you and he gave you a new identity, he's given you everything that you could possibly need. So it's really not a matter of needing more but it's a matter of appropriating what we already have. I recently read the story of Morris Siegel. Morris Siegel was a man who lived as a street person in Los Angeles in the 1980s. And just like many street people, he just wandered the streets. He had a a shopping cart that basically contained everything that he owned. And he slept outdoors and he begged for food, and he just kind of lived the life of a street person. Well, what Morris Siegel did not know is that 10 years earlier, his father had died and left him over $200,000, $200,000. And so the Department of Unclaimed Resources or whatever they're called, uh, tracked Morris Siegel down to notify him, listen, Your father died 10 years ago. He left you this money. This money is in an account for you. And some of the family members of Morris Siegel helped him to set that up and and that money was in the bank. Do you know what he did with it? Absolutely nothing. He continued to live on the streets. He continued to sleep on the streets. He continued, continued to eat out of garbage cans. And a few years later, Morris Siegel died And in his pocket, they found $3, $3, dead, living on the streets, yet at the same time, having almost a quarter of a million dollars sitting in a bank account. 
And you say, what a tragic story. And that is a tragic story, isn't it? But how much more tragic is it for us who claim to know the king of the universe, who claim to believe that God has saved us radically and changed our lives radically, and yet we still are grasping for things and for people and relationships and meaning and purpose in other areas outside of Christ. When in Christ, we have literally everything that we need, everything that our hearts long for. We need to learn how to appropriate the gospel in our lives. We have to be constantly reminded that when I'm tempted to run after things smaller than Jesus, when I'm, when I'm tempted to chase those idols in my life, right? Those things that promise meaning, satisfaction, and joy, and purpose, and pleasure. When I'm tempted to run after those things, I have to preach the gospel to myself. And I have to remind myself, listen, Sky, everything you have, you have in Christ. All the joy and satisfaction and pleasure that you could long for and things outside of me, you have in me. Trust me, rest in me, run to me. That's how we appropriate the gospel into our lives. We need to live in the fullness and the security that the gospel provides. The second truth in Colossians 2 that I see is this. Not only in Christ are we complete, in Christ you are alive. In Christ you are alive. Look at verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. In other words, you were dead. Dead is dead, right? I mean, dead means there's no life in us. That we have no capacity on our own to remedy our problem. Now listen, you can be really sick and there are treatments available, right? You can get better, thankfully. Some of you have been really sick and because of modern medicine and because of God's grace, right? You have gotten better and that's a good thing. But the last time I checked, there is no cure for dead, right? Once a person is dead, they are dead. And so scripture, not by chance, is using this picture of death to describe our spiritual condition apart from Christ. Just like a dead person can do nothing to remedy their problem, a spiritually dead person can also do nothing to remedy their problem. They need outside intervention. And because of the gospel, we get it. <laughs> we get that outside intervention. So not only does that spiritual death uh, cause us to be um, incapable of doing anything to remedy our problem, it also separates us from a relationship. Another thing that death does is removes us from relationship. Some of you have lost a loved one this year, and that really is sad. It is. I lost my mom just a couple of years ago. I really miss my mom. So I know what it's like to lose a loved one to death. And, and, and even though you may know that your loved one is in heaven and they're with God, you still feel the separation, you feel the loss of connection, you feel the separation that is no that, that you used to have, right? That the closeness that you used to have. And that's exactly what death does. But the picture here in Colossians 2, though, is that God didn't leave us dead. He provided life for us. Verse 13, but God made you alive with 
Christ. He made you alive with Christ. What does he mean by that? Doesn't just simply mean that, you know, he allows us to have a heartbeat and emotions and feelings and all the things that we associate with life. No, it's much deeper than that. I, I believe the life that, that God gives us as followers of Jesus is what Jesus is describing in John 10, 10, when he says, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. That word, that word life in John 10, 10 comes from the Greek word zoe, okay? And it means to have life real and genuine, active and vigorous, a life devoted to God. In other words, God has given us a life that is full. It's full. So listen, if you're not experiencing that kind of life right now, it's because you've forgotten what God has done for you. You have forgotten the goodness of the gospel. You've forgotten the joy of what God has provided for you in Christ. And you need to go back and appropriate it again. You need to be reminded that you have more life in Christ than anything that this world could ever promise you as far as life goes. So in Christ, you're complete. In Christ, you're alive. There's a third thing. In Christ, you are forgiven. Look at verse 13 to 14. He forgave us of all of our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us and took it away, nailing it to the cross. Oh my goodness, look what God has done for us through Christ. He has forgiven us. Now, as I think about forgiveness, that's a, a word that we use regularly in the church, right? Thankfully, we do. But sometimes because we do use it regularly, sometimes we forget the significance of it, the significance of it. So let's unpack it a little bit because I think that's what Paul does here in Colossians 2. The first thing I see is this. His forgiveness is gracious. When he says having forgiven, that word forgive means to pardon, to stop feeling angry toward. Look at me, everybody, all eyes right here. God, if you are in Christ, God is no longer angry with you. You say, well, Sky, you don't know what I did last week. I blew it again. God is no longer angry with you. If you are in Christ, you have been forgiven, pardoned. You have been set free. Church, listen, receive that. Believe that. It is gracious. Forgiveness is not based on condition of how you respond to it or how well you're performing in a given week. God's forgiveness toward you is on the basis of his love for you that has been demonstrated through Christ. Receive it, receive it. Not only that, his forgiveness is permanent. Verse 13, he's forgiven all our trespasses. Notice that, Under, circle the word all. Not some of your trespasses, right? Not just God's good at forgiving the little things, but the big things, man, those, those things are harder for God to get over. You know what I mean? If you notice, sometimes we, we have a hard time forgiving ourselves of certain things. God's not phased. God can forgive you of the big things and the small things. I mean, ultimately, they're all big things in the sight of God. But because of Christ and what he's done, he's forgiven you of all of your sins. There's another aspect of that that we often forget. Forgiveness of all sins is not just 
all your past sins. That's glorious and good. But it's also present sins and future sins. You say, wait a second, Sky. You're saying that God has forgiven me of sins that I may commit later today or tomorrow? A hundred percent. You say, well, that, that, doesn't, that seems like cheap grace. No, it's not cheap grace at all. It's grace. Let me tell you how that works. If that weren't the case, just play this out with me for just a moment. If it weren't the case, if God has only forgiven you for past sins, and then later today, you tell a lie, you have a lustful thought, you do something that's sinful, guess what happens? You need to get saved again. You're lost because your sin would separate you from God. If God doesn't forgive your sins past, present, and future, every time you sinned after that first day of salvation, you would have to get saved all over again. So the fact that God's forgiveness is permanent is a reminder that we are forgiven by God's grace. Now listen, I know that we still sin and that sin has consequences. It robs us of intimacy and fellowship with God, but it does not break our relationship with God. The enemy wants you to think that it does. That's why so many people feel like, man, I just, I just need to get saved again, you know, because I've really been blowing it. No, you just need to repent and believe the gospel again and accept the forgiveness that God has given to you through Christ. His forgiveness is gracious, it's permanent. Here's another thing, his forgiveness is certain. Verse 13, it says, canceling the threat or, or, or the record of debt. What does that mean? That means that the law stands in opposition to you. When, when a, a Roman criminal was crucified on a cross, that uh, the soldiers would put a record of their debt there. This is what they've done to deserve death on a cross. So when Paul uses this, what he's saying is this, because of Jesus's death on the cross, your sinful record now has been applied to his cross. All of your sin, all of the sins that you've done past, present, and future as a Christian, guess what? They have been applied to Jesus's account and they have been paid for on the cross. That's good news, folks. Praise God that our record of sin has been nailed to the cross and that Jesus has atoned for it and paid for it. That's what allows us to live in the freedom of forgiveness. So the cross stands as a certain reminder and promise that our sins will always be covered. There's one more aspect of forgiveness and it's not found in Colossians 2. It's actually found in Ephesians 4. Don't you listen to me on this. His forgiveness is also motivating, okay? It's also motivating. What do I mean by that? Some of you have been wounded and hurt by other people. There have been people that have lied to you. There have been people that have hurt you. There have been people that have disappointed you. Maybe people that have even abandoned you, okay? And you may really struggle in your heart with forgiving certain people for what they've done. Listen to what Ephesians chapter four, verse 32 says. Paul says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You know what Paul's saying there? The more we understand the magnitude and the sufficiency of the forgiveness that God has provided to us through Christ, the more we're able to freely extend that to others. Because listen, there's nothing that someone hasn't done to you that you haven't done to God in a sense, right? 
Think of all the things, all the broken promises, all the lies, things that you've done that have been disobedient to God. And yet God, because of his mercy and grace, has chosen to forgive you. So if someone has hurt you and wounded you, listen, lean on the forgiveness that you have received. Trust in the forgiveness that you have received and then just choose to freely give that to another person. I have found that that is the only way that I'm able to forgive. When someone's hurt me, and I've had it happen a lot of times, when someone's hurt me, I have to lean back on the forgiveness that God has given me and that's what I allow God to use to extend to others. Fourth thing, fourth thing, not only are we complete, alive, and forgiven in Christ, listen, you are free. You are free. Look at verse 15. Look at verse 15 in Colossians 2. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame, triumphing over them by the cross. What Paul's describing here, he's, he's using this um, kind of as an analogy to describe the freedom that we have. When, when, a, when a Roman general would go into war and would defeat his enemies, um, there was a celebration that then ensued when he would return home. So much so that there would be a massive parade in Rome. The conquering general would be in his chariot, pulled by four horses. His troops would be behind him. And then behind those troops would be the defeated, captured armies. And then finally, their defeated, captured king. And that king would be humiliated because the, ru the ruling conqueror had defeated the enemy. Paul's using this picture to say, we have a defeated enemy. Satan is defeated. We may see him wreaking havoc still in our lives and around the world today, but according to God's word, he has been defeated. We do not have to listen to his lies anymore. You don't have to be subjected to his harassment and accusation anymore. You are free because of Christ and the cross has secured our freedom. So many Christians live defeated lives. Why? Because they are not living and believing the finished work of Christ. They feel like there's still something else, something I gotta prove, you know, something I gotta do that God's not fully pleased with me rather than resting in the fact that it is finished. You are loved. You are accepted. You are complete. You are forgiven on the basis of what Christ has done for you. I love what Michael Morrison says. He says, our victory does not come from our ability to keep the rules. It comes from Christ on the cross. And then Michael Horton says this, we do not accomplish the victory, but we are recipients that the report uh, of the report that it has been achieved. The gospel declares that you are free in Christ. Don't live as a slave anymore. Don't live under the accusations that the enemy wants to give you all the time. Believe because of Christ, because you are in him. You have a new identity that you, brother, sister, that you are free. So as we close, let me just remind you these four truths that Paul gives us. In Christ, you have everything you need. You are complete you are alive, you are forgiven, and you are free. Now, what do we do with that? We believe it, and then we appropriate it. We believe it, 
right? Do you? And then we appropriate it as we live it out. Let's pray together.